Well, happy anniversary. Happy New Year. It is a happy anniversary. It is an anniversary today, but it's not a very happy one. It was exactly 100 years ago today, January 1, 1923, that there was the Rosewood Massacre. I never heard of that until I did a little research on what happened on this day for this New Year's Day sermon. On January 1, 1923, a young white woman in Sumner, Florida, was covered with bruises, and she claimed that a black man had assaulted her. Her husband, a foreman at the local mill, got together a bunch of his friends, his white friends from town, and he contacted people in other counties, including about 500 members of the KKK. And so these white mobs began to search the woods for any black man that they could find. Now, law enforcement officials had um, determined that a black prisoner by the name of Jesse Hunter had escaped from a chain gang, and they immediately pinned this on him, made him the suspect. So the mobs focused on searches for Hunter, and they went after uh, black families that they thought might be hiding him. In Rosewood, for example, one mob pulled a black man out of his house, tied him to the car, dragged him to Sumner, Florida, and beat him. Another mob tortured a blacksmith until he took them to the spot where it was believed that a Hunter was to be hiding. When Hunter was not found in that spot, the mob shot this man and then hung him on a tree. Another mob captured a black woman, tried to get her to confess that her husband was the assailant. They interrogated her mercilessly, and then they gang-raped her. Meanwhile, the mobs burned churches and houses and other places of business in Rosewood, unleashing terror on the community. The Gospel of Matthew speaks of a voice in Ramah, a city in ancient Israel. You could change the location from Ramah to Rosewood, and the verse still makes perfect sense. A voice is heard in Rosewood, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. In both ancient Israel and in modern America, we know the devastating impact of violence that is born out of fear. Jesus himself faced that deadly violence at the very beginning of his life. Right after the Magi had left Bethlehem, scholars think that Mary and Joseph had gotten a house there after the birth and when the Magi had, uh, had come. And after they left Bethlehem, King Herod put out a decree and an angel of the Lord came to Joseph in a dream and uh, told Joseph this, get up, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. 
Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search the child to kill him. So King Herod was feeling threatened by the birth of Jesus because it was said that Jesus was the king of the Jews. So you can almost imagine King Herod protesting and marching around his palace saying, you will not replace me. A motto that we've heard in our own history. He was frightened. He was infuriated. And so he put out a search and destroy mission in the city of Bethlehem. Unfortunately, the feelings that drove Herod to violence are still alive and well in our society today. From Bethlehem to Rosewood, the story is the same. There's fear, there's pride, insecurity and resentment and prejudice. And all these feelings and attitudes and dispositions result in violence. Herod resorted to violence because of how he saw Jesus. He didn't see Jesus as a gift of God. He saw Jesus as a threat. I just wonder if that's sometimes how we see other people. We see this group as a threat or that group as a threat. Sometimes we see our bosses as threats our co-workers as threats. And so we're very insecure. We're very cautious. And sometimes that caution is well-founded, honestly. But those who attacked the people of Rosewood didn't see those people as individuals, as humans with value. They saw them as threats, as things. It was January 1995 when Azim Kamisa woke up to find a business card in his door from the homicide division of the San Diego Police Department. He was worried, obviously. He called the number and an officer told him the bad news about a tragedy involving his son. Azim's only son, who's a 20-year-old college student, was delivering a pizza in a part of San Diego that was known for gang-related violence. His son's name is Tariq. As Tariq sat in his car, figuring out the delivery of that pizza, another car pulled in behind him and pinned him in. Two teenagers got out of the car. Tony Hicks, all of 14 years old, was handed a gun by the older teenager who was the leader of the gang. And the leader of the gang told Tony to take out the unknown pizza delivery man. Tony obeyed. One bullet that pierced Tariq's heart. The officer came to inform Tariq's dad, Azim, that his son was found dead at the scene. In the months that followed, Azim struggled with anxiety, fear, rage, despair, helplessness, and thoughts of vengeance. Azim is a devout Muslim, and he also therefore struggled with a strong Islamic teaching to resist being consumed by hatred 
the teaching to forgive the unforgivable. Azim took care not to act out in anger, but he didn't suppress it. He meditated prayerfully and he sought therapy to deal with his grief. And over time, he felt a, a sense of spiritual rest within him. Well, Azim came to realize through his meditation and his therapy, there were victims on both sides of that gun. There was his son, obviously, Tariq, a victim of the shooting. But there was also a 14-year-old African-American kid who had grown up in poverty and racism. Tried as an adult, thrown into a cell for the unforeseeable future. Azim decided that the cycle of despair and the cycle of violence had to come to an end, so he quit his job, and he formed a foundation named after his son, dedicated to eradicating the conditions of youth violence and, and teaching young people the peacemaker's path of nonviolence and forgiveness and restorative justice. And he invited the teenager's granddad to join him in the effort. And then Azim took a deep breath and he knew he had to do this. He had to go see Tony in prison. Azim was anxious. He imagined looking into the gang member's eyes and seeing the face of a cold-blooded killer. He prayed for mercy. Well, Tony entered the visiting booth. Azim looked into his eyes. Azim didn't see a killer. He saw a terrified child beaten down by a world that was stacked against him. Azim described it like this. I gazed straight into Tony's soul and I saw the boy's humanity. In that moment of connection, they both looked at each other and both of their hearts were broken. Both of their hearts were touched by a, by a sacred grace. Azim listened and shared with Tony without malice, without judgment, without accusation, the grief that he was experiencing over losing his son, Tariq. And then Azim listened to Tony talk about his childhood growing up in a gang-ridden ghetto. Azim cried for Tony. Tony cried for Azim. And Tony expressed how sorry he was, how he wished he could take it back. I wish he could make up for it. And Azim offered Tony a way. In fact, he offered Tony a job. That whenever and if Tony would get out of jail, Azim wanted Tony to come and be an advocate against violence. To teach young people in this foundation how to be nonviolent to teach people in this organization that was named after the son that Tony had killed. 
Tony says this. That is a very special man. I shot and killed his one and only son. And yet he can sit with me, encourage me, and then offer me a job. Now, how in the world do you explain Azim's compassion? Did you catch, and I hope you did, that Azim is a Muslim? Does that change any of your perception of Islam? A couple of years ago, I did a funeral for a military individual, and I shared this before with you, and I want to remind you of it. There's a military group that led the processional from the funeral home to the cemetery, and I am so thankful for them. But I was so disturbed, and I was sitting in my place behind the podium in the funeral home and military processional leaders came and paid respects to the deceased. One of the individuals had a patch on his leather jacket that said, all I need to know about Muslims is 9-11. And I just wonder how many possibly here allowed the horrific act on 9-11 to frame how you viewed Islam? How many do you know in your own circle of friends and family who because of that and other things that extremists have done, you've developed a, a prejudice? We could go into the history of Christianity there's a lot of evil on both sides, aren't there? So how did Azim, a follower of Islam, which means peace, develop and express such compassion? Three things. He had contemplative awareness. Azim looked at Tony with contemplative awareness he had eyes that went beyond what Azim, what Tony did. And he was able to look into Tony's soul. And he saw not just a human, but he saw one in whom the divine dwelt with value. You know, when we look at people, I think the people that we look at know if we're looking at them as objects or as people. Are we looking at people with contemplative awareness? Second thing, understand people empathically. That's a big word, empathically. It's literally kind of the same way I'm using it today as the Hebrew and the Greek words for compassion. And it means to be moved by someone's experience. The Hebrew word for compassion is found so many times. For example, Deuteronomy 4.31, For the Lord your God is a compassionate God. The Hebrew word is rakum. It's kind of weird, isn't it? It means womb, or sometimes it means your bowels. 
Now, keep that in mind. It's a pleasant thought. Keep that in mind and go to the Christian scripture. You all remember the story of the Good Samaritan when the man was uh, beaten up by thieves and the religious people passed him by, but a Samaritan came by. Somebody that was uh, discriminated against by the people of Israel. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion and went to him. The Greek word is a mouthful. It's, uh, just say spaghetti. <laughs> it's close enough. But it's, it means the same thing as that Hebrew word. It literally means to be moved in your bowels. It sounds pretty gross, and it is gross if you think about it. But the culture of Israel saw that the intestines were the seat of emotions. It's not too much different than our culture. We see the seat of emotions as a heart pumping blood, which is kind of gross too. But the same, it's the same idea. And the bottom line is that when we have compassion for someone, when you have empathy for someone, you are moved by their experience. And that's what Azim was. He heard Tony's story, and he was gutturally moved by them. When he listened to how Tony was raised and how he experienced such deep wounds and oppression, Azim felt compassion toward him. When we look contemplatively into a person. The next stage is compassion. Because if we look with contemplation, we will understand the pain, the wounds, the experiences, as Azim did with Tony, that gave birth to this act of violence. The third thing that helps me is to sense the sacredness of people and sense the sacredness of this thing called compassion. It's a spiritual power. It's a movement of God within us, the God of compassion, the God who created you, and you are created in that image, so you are a human of compassion. If you're created by God, you have within you that ability to be just as compassionate as God and as Christ. So, when we need compassion, now, we, I hope none of us will experience what Azim did. And none of us can understand, I can't anyway, the level of pain, the intensity that he felt at the death of his son by that bullet. So you and I, however, are called at times to be compassionate to people at work, to a clerk at a store, to the system of trying to get through to the insurance company to pay Denise's health premium on Friday. And all the prompts. And I just wanted to throw my sermon out the window because I wasn't compassionate. 
Then I began to think, it's not this person's fault. It's somebody's damn fault, but I don't know who. (laughs) So what do I need to do? I need to take a breath. I want to retaliate. I want to lash out. So I need to stop and take a breath. I need to ground myself in my own belovedness, that I am loved by God, that I am a person of dignity, that I am a person of compassion, because I'm created by God in God's image. I know that I can't give a person dignity if I don't feel like I have dignity. I can't show compassion to another person if I don't feel like I've received compassion. So I ground myself in my own, my own being of loved, being loved, and, and having the resources in me through God, through the divine, to be as compassionate as God. And then I connect to that sacred compassion that connects all things. Azim recognized that Tony was a human, that the one who killed his son was a member of this beloved community. Boy, that's a hard thing to do, to look into the eyes of someone who took out a life close to you. So we very seldom will find ourselves in a situation like Azim, but every day we are faced with situations that call us hmm, to be compassionate or not. I love the Matthew's recording of Jesus toward the end of his time on earth. He went to Jerusalem, sitting on top of the mountain, looking over the city. And the gospel writer records that as Jesus looked at the city, he was moved in his gut by compassion. I just want to be a person this year who can look at every individual, look at every group of individuals and be moved with compassion. He knew Jesus did in that city where people who were going to kill him, who were going to hang him on a cross, going to drive spikes through his hands and his feet and a sword in his side. But he looked at people, all the people, with compassion. So what will we do when we see people? We have a choice. Steve Hartman CBS News tells about a choice that this youngster made to be compassionate. Take a look. We'll close with this. Oh, gosh. No wonder Jesus said, unless you become as children, you won't experience his kingdom. Yeah. God, make me like a child today throughout 23. Let's pray. God, on the start of this new year,
I ask that you will help me start each day and periodically throughout the day. In fact, live throughout the day with my eyes gazing at you so I can see your love and your compassion. And help me turn my gaze toward people. And the love that I have received from you and the compassion that I've received from you, may I be a conduit to every person that I speak to, that I look at, that I encounter. Help us to help each other. Show love. Choose love. Choose compassion. In the name of the compassionate one, I pray. Amen.